for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading uh, comes from Luke 6, 27 through 38. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, you can find it on page 1467. But I say to you who are listening, I say... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But your enemies... But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful and just, as your Father is merciful. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the word of the Lord for the people of of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thanks, Anne. Okay, so picture with me, it's the year 250 A.D., or North Africa. So you've got, you've got Israel, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, below you've got North Africa, and this, the Roman city of Carthage. In 250, there's a church leader, he's actually a bishop, his name is Cyprian. A really amazing, inspiring guy. And Cyprian is an overseer of all of these churches throughout North Africa. And it's a really hard time to be a pastor. It's a really hard time to be a Christian because a lot's going on. For starters, there's an epidemic going all throughout North Africa that's killing tons of people, dispiriting tons of people. You know we're now in year like 15 of COVID, and, and there's, a, there's a wearying effect of, of just the longer it's part of our reality. And this is the same going on in Carthage uh, under Cyprian's leadership. At the same time, uh, the, the church is being systematically oppressed and persecuted by the empire. And so there's this, this really fascinating dynamic. You've heard of different seasons in church history where the church has been persecuted, but imagine this relational complexity. Imagine in a room like this, you know, there, there are those when facing persecution who would stand strong in the face of it, of oppression. But there were also those who recanted their faith 
who, like Peter, said, like, I never knew the man. And, and the church had to deal with the ongoing consequences of what do we do with the people who recanted their faith? They're worn out by the epidemic. They're divided over how people have responded uh, to persecution. And, and there's just fear and exhaustion. How are we to bear up under all of this? And here's Cyprian, this pastor to pastors, a bishop, an overseer of the church, thinking, what am I going to say to these people? What do I have to offer to encourage them in the middle of everything that's going on? In the year 256, he writes this letter, this encyclical that goes to all the churches throughout North Africa, the churches under his care. You think if you're a Cyprian, if you're in charge, what, what is it that you would want to communicate? What's the, the theme that would be most important? Maybe for people going through all of this, you'd say, well, we need to talk about the sovereignty of God. Or maybe thinking about disunity in the church and relating to those who had denied their faith and some who continued strong. Maybe you talk about grace or maybe you talk about forgiveness. Well, Cyprian doesn't pick up any of these topics. Instead, he writes this treatise. It takes about an hour to read. You can find it if you Google it. It's called On the Virtue of Patience or On the Good of Patience. He, he writes this to the church, and this is how he begins this letter. Now, remember the epidemic, remember oppression, remember disunity in the church. This is what he says to the believers. He said, In speaking of patience, beloved brethren, and in preaching on its benefits and advantages, how can I better begin than by pointing out the fact that now, just for you to listen to me, I see that patience is necessary. Of all the things he could have picked, he talks about Patience. Even in listening to me write, compose this right now, you need patience. As you could not even do this, namely listen and learn without patience. For only then is the word of God and the way of salvation effectively learned if one listens with patience to what is being said. Like, where are you going with this? Why start here? And then Cyprian goes on to talk about pagan philosophers who boast that they're like the most patient people on earth, which I think is like humility. I don't think you're supposed to brag about that. But uh, they, they say they really know how to practice and espouse patience, but Cyprian says they deny it by the way that they live, and they do so arrogantly. Against these pagan philosophers, Cyprian goes on to say, We, however, beloved brethren, are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. And then he goes on to this mic drop of a line. He says, we do not speak great things, but we live them. Therefore, as servants and worshipers of God, let us show by spiritual homage the patience that we learn from heavenly teachings. For that virtue, patience, we have in common with God. In Him, patience has its beginning, and from Him as its source, it takes its splendor and dignity. The origin and greatness of patience proceeds from God, its author. The quality that is dear to God ought to be loved by us, and the divine majesty commends the good which He loves. If God is our master and our father, let us strive after the patience of him who is both our master and father, because it is fitting that servants be obedient, and it is not proper that sons be unworthy. He says, we do not speak great things, but we live them. 
One of my favorite books that I've read in the last five years that really gives an inside view to the personality and the practices of the church in its first couple of centuries. Uh, you've heard me reference if you've been around, it's called Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in the book, the author describes the rigorous practices of the church in attracting and training and then baptizing new believers. And such rigor in the way that they discipled believers uh, was necessary for two big reasons. One was to be baptized was a highly consequential act. Now, in, you know, the West and churches these days, you can show up on any Sunday morning, get dunked without much of an examination, and walk away with a t-shirt. And this is historically unheard of in the first couple of centuries of the church. Because to be baptized was, you know, we, we know that we're baptized into his death, but it could mean a literal death for those who chose to become part of the church through baptism. They could be kicked out of trade guilds. Imagine that you can no longer work in your industry if you were baptized. Uh, you could be kicked out of your family if you were baptized because you no longer worship, you know, the, the gods of the Romans and the whole pantheon. And it could also mean your literal death sentence by, by being, being baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. It was consequential to be baptized. Therefore, as they brought people into the baptized life, they did it with a lot of uh, rigor and enthusiasm. The second reason that they were, so, they were so careful and meticulous in discipling those who had become part of the church was that they believed that the integrity and the mission of the church were bound up in individuals' uh, uh, their faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus. And so the pathway leading to discipleship examined not only your, your, uh, your theology, but do you actually do the Jesus stuff? Do you actually do the Sermon on the Mount stuff or the Sermon on the Plain stuff as we're looking at in Luke chapter 6 today, especially with regard to treatment of one's enemies and care for the poor? And contrary to how things operate these days, the, the first level of emphasis was on obedience. Are you doing the stuff? And then the second layer of emphasis was on uh, do you believe the, the, the robustness of your theology? They understood that a person who purported to believe but didn't practice the way of Jesus just couldn't make it to baptism. And they would question, do they really believe it in the first place? They were patient and they were rigorous in calling men and women to a true life of picking up their cross and following Jesus. And this was intrinsically nonviolent. So think about the first couple of centuries with this extreme emphasis on teaching and practicing the way of Jesus, especially with a view toward nonviolence. How on earth did it happen? That some 200, 250 years later, we have church leaders like Augustine writing to say that some violence is actually just. It actually serves a good. And then you get 500 years after that, and some church leaders are contending that some violence is not only permissible, not only just, but actually holy. And you could kill in the name of Jesus for some purposes, and those sins would be overlooked. Well, right, wrong, or inevitable, part of the explanation is that the church, as the years went on, gained something that it didn't have at the very beginning, which was cultural and political power. And as the centuries went on, having gotten accustomed to having that power, it became something they very much didn't want to lose. And the logic of violence seeped into the church and altered, though not inexorably, uh, 
It's DNA. Now, all of a sudden, it's a thing that you can believe one thing and yet practice another. So we've had two weeks in a row of intense teaching from Jesus. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Luke's version of, of the Beatitudes. And, and in the, the Lucan account, uh, Jesus' Beatitudes, which are eight or nine in the Gospel of Matthew, are reduced to four, but then it's paired with these four woes, these like, oh man, I feel bad for, uh, you know, kind of statements from Jesus. And, and last week, we explored Jesus' woes on the rich, and we discovered that in Jesus teaching a life consumed by the love of riches, and we talked about it in terms of financial capital, you got money to spend, but also social capital, meaning people like you, you've, you've, got, um, you've got relational resources. A life consumed by love of that kind of capital uh, can be a life that's deeply encumbered. Loving those things can actually choke out your ability to respond to the gospel. Do you remember the parable of the sower? Jesus talked about the seed that landed in all kinds of different terrain, including those that landed among the thorns. And in explaining the parable, Jesus said, those who, who heard the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choked out their ability to respond further to it. As we talked about last week, if you love wealth or if you are addicted to being liked too much, it can negatively impact your ability to seek first the kingdom of God. And it might affect how you live. If one's riches are threatened, we might feel inclined to defend them with violence. Or if other people begin to encroach on the things that are precious to us, they ask for our money, we might feel inclined to pull back. And in both cases, thinking about riches, thinking about violence, we fight or withdraw to keep our hands on what has gotten its hold on our hearts. And it's immediately following this text, these Jesus woes on the rich, that we get to the passage that Anne just read for us today. You can draw a direct line from Jesus' warnings against the danger of loving wealth and possessions to his teaching on nonviolence and non-judgmental generosity to the poor. So here again, this is what we just read, Luke 6, 27. He's, he's in the middle of a sermon, remember, and he says, to you who are listening, he acknowledges, I can imagine there are a good number of you who have probably begun to tune me out by now. Following the Beatitudes and especially the woes, there's some of you who are like, this is a difficult teaching. But to those who are still hanging with me, says Jesus, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to anyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, I hope I'll probably preach this text many more times in the years to come. I preached it from the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago on the lawn. But as I, as I was thinking about it this week and, and meditating on the passage, it struck me that in these verses, Jesus is casting a vision of a truly free life, a truly liberated life. It's a life that is free from hatred, a life that's free from the need to get back at anybody, a life that's free from the need to defend oneself. 
It's a life that's free from possessiveness about stuff and free from fear that there's not going to be enough to go around to meet my needs. He's a person who can live like this is a person who's been truly liberated from within or perhaps from without. As we think about these themes, like if you had to boil it down to two things in Jesus' teaching here, two big themes emerge. One of them is relating to enemies or offenders or people we dislike, and then the other is the theme of relating to wealth and resources. What I'd like to do is pass the mic, and I want you to share which of those you struggle with more, and then we're going to scrutinize you. (laughs) But you probably could pick one that's more difficult for you than the other. If there were a sensitive topic that you like, if you and I went to lunch and you thought, what's the one thing I really don't want John to bring up? It might be one of those two for you. Don't talk to me about relating to people with whom I disagree or the people I dislike, and don't talk to me about money. Uh, for many of us, we, we struggle with one or both of those. Now, for me, the, the topic of, of enemies is less difficult. It might be more difficult if in my lifetime I'd had a lot more enemies or It could be that being the third brother, having two older brothers, I'm just used to getting dumped on and I can take it at this point. (laughs) Solidarity with all of you with older brothers. But I think for me, the the one that's more difficult is grappling with the theme of of wealth and, and money. Because you could probably ask anyone who advises people on how they handle money, when you talk about money, you are talking about so much more than currency. When you talk about money and how you handle money and how you think about money and what money does for you or does to you, you're talking about identity. You're talking about self-worth. You're talking about, you know, social comparison and how you measure up and where you see yourselves, yourself in the pecking order. When you talk about money and resources, you are talking about so much more than what's on the surface. And, and both of these are very, very sensitive topics. And both of these are topics that are deeply bound up with fear. I once worked with a guy in ministry, true story, who said to me, look, if anybody crosses me, I will never speak to them again. Whoa, you said that very confidently. We're no longer on speaking terms, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But he really said it. He really meant it. As I thought about what kind of person says something like that, it's a person who's been betrayed. It's a person who knows what it's like to feel rejection or to be really hurt. And you know, you know, when you, even my dog, we, we have a, 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 I don't know what she is, a mutt, and she jumps up on people, and so we got one of the shock collars, and we don't shock her, we just do the vibration function. I just have to get out the remote, and she's running away. Like, we have not abused it, I'm a nice guy, all those things, okay? But, you know, as human beings, like, when we feel those, those negative feelings, we want to do anything we can to keep from feeling them again. And so in the case of this, this guy that I once worked with, for him, it was like, if there's even an inkling that it could go that direction, I'm cutting that person off. And ultimately, it's like, oh, this is just a scared little boy who's afraid to feel his big feelings. I, I know what that's like. So they draw lines in the sand. And the same can be, to be true of those who, who struggle to be generous or who are obsessed with pinching pennies or are always watching if their stuff matches up with the people that they feel like they want to compete with, always worried about money, thinking about money. 
Maybe it's because, you know, going back to family of origin, they knew what it was like to have less than other people, or they knew what it was like to be scared of how you were going to make ends meet. And so wanting to never feel those things again, they did everything in their power to stop it. And so maybe they turned into workaholics, or maybe they turned into control freaks. And all of these feelings, thinking about wealth or thinking about relating to enemies or conflict, all of these feelings are real and primal and even all-consuming. It annoys me, I look at you, Emily, it annoys me to no end how much of a feeler I am. It annoys me to no end that I have to deal with the, in, like the inconvenience of my emotions. <laughs> And you may feel equally annoyed with your own, but these feelings, they emanate from fear in so many cases, and those feelings of fear are raw and instinctive and like primal, and we have to deal with them if we want to be well. And here goes Jesus being insensitive, do we think, to, to our feelings, urging us to do the opposite of what we want to do in relating to our enemies and urging us to do the opposite of what we want to do in relating to all of our resources. Is Jesus just out of touch? Is Jesus just like out of touch with the human experience that he would commend nonviolent, non-retaliation? Has Jesus gone mad and that he would commend and advocate for non-judgmental generosity? Like, is it even possible by what means could a person be so free in their inner life, in their, in their manner of being, that they could turn the cheek when they're struck on one and they could lend without hope of repayment? How could a person do that? Well, consider again the words of Jesus. Verse 32, he said, If you love those who love you, well, big deal. Everyone does that. What credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Big deal. Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But you, who are still listening, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then we follow the then after that. What, by, by what means can a person do this? So that then your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High because He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Did y'all ever read Freakonomics? Really, really good book, Super Freakonomics. And some of you get it. There's a podcast, there's a movie. And one of, the, one of the biggest takeaways I took away from the book Freakonomics is that everybody responds to incentives. You know, economists are trying to understand, in many ways, why do people do the things that they do? Uh, and all of us respond to incentives. You know, you may do something nice because you hope that somebody does something nice to you in return. There's, it's, it's, in, it's intrinsic to being human is that we respond to incentives. Well, Jesus' call to non-retaliation and non-judgmental generosity has its own incentive has its own motivation, and it's funded and undergirded and incentivized by patient hope. To live in this way, and then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High. So the, the ability to not pay back cruelty or unkindness in kind, and the ability to lend to others without fear is derived from a confidence that this way of living is ultimately going to be rewarded. 
that it's actually in the long run going to prove to be more profitable than taking the shortcut and choosing violence and choosing stinginess. To live in this way is derived from a confidence that this way of living will be ultimately rewarded and validated. I wonder, as you think about these topics of of conflict or dealing with enemies and thinking about relating to resources and wealth, I wonder if you look within and consider to what degree are you walking in the kind of freedom that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 6? To what degree are you walking in in the freedom, the, the freedom to forgive and the freedom to not retaliate? To what degree are you living in the joyful freedom of of the freedom to be generous? And if you're not, I wonder what's holding you back? What are the things that are holding you back? The good news for us is that the gospel is not moralism. The gospel is the good news of an announcement. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God loves the world and offers salvation from sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because God loves you and He loves me, He offers a way out he offers us onto, like a way into the way of peace. He offers us an opportunity to escape from the typical path, the way that everyone lives, and invites us into an alternate way of living, the freedom to forgive, the freedom to not retaliate, the freedom to be generous. And if we let it, this gospel can train us to walk the path toward greater freedom. How do we begin to do this? And thinking about moving into greater freedom in our relationship with resources and our relationship with enemies or those with whom we disagree, how do we move into greater freedom and invite the gospel to teach us to do that? I'm going to give you five uh, steps that are more like a a never-ending cycle. The first thing I want to encourage you to do uh, in in the, the confidence that you're in the safety of God's presence, that God loves you, Name your fears to the Lord Jesus. So remember, I, I could just ask you the question, what are you afraid of? When the topic of money comes up and your blood pressure elevates, why is that? What are you afraid of? Or when you're thinking about like making peace with that person who wronged you, maybe it was a parent, or maybe it was a teacher, or maybe it was a, a friend, maybe it was a former spouse. Uh, when, you, when you think of that, that topic, what are the, what's, what's your fear in, in the middle of that? And have you ever named that fear to the Lord? I love the question. I'll probably preach on it every year one way or another as long as I'm a pastor. Jesus in the Gospel of John says, do you want to be well? I think many of us in, around certain fears in our lives, we want to be well, but just not yet. Or my friend Aaron reminded me of the quote from C.S. Lewis in between services, like, Lord, teach me to be chaste, but not yet. Name your fears to the Lord Jesus. For some of you, that may be a really big hurdle to get over, but just to name, this is what I'm really afraid of. The second thing I'd encourage you to do in the presence of God is to explore the experiences and the ideas behind your fear. So let's, let's say it's money. Go back to those, those childhood moments where it started. Uh, I got to hold my son, River. River turned one yesterday, and he celebrated today by waking up at an ungodly hour. <laughs> and he's such a sweet boy. He's such a sweet boy. I blow him kisses, and he does this back. He'll volunteer it. He's so sweet. I love him so much. And someday, rivers, like little fears are going to be introduced into my son's heart. It makes me so sad to say that. But there was a moment where little you 
you were taught to be afraid. Now, maybe even thinking about going into that mental neighborhood feels scary and you feel like putting up your defenses. It's like, I haven't been here in a long time and I'm not so happy to be back. But in the presence of God who loves you, who also wants you to be well, naming those fears to the Lord, explore with Him the experiences and the ideas that prompt the fear. Consider, where do you need healing? And, and maybe one of the signs that you need healing is it still hurts just to talk about it. Where in, in that area are you believing falsehoods? And explore that in, the conversa- in conversation with the Lord, or maybe with a counselor, maybe with trusted people in your apprentice group. So having named your fears and begun to, ex- began to explore those experiences and ideas that undergird the fear, the third thing that's a really important step is to ask the Lord to free you from those fears. Some of you can't imagine life without them. Now, it might, it might not be resources, it might not be enemies, but there's a fear in you, and it has been your constant companion since you were a child, and you can't imagine life without it. And you've never even thought of asking the Lord, would you please free me from this? Remember, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God loves the world and offers salvation from sin for, the, for those who believe through Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to free you from fear. Now, you may sense in conversation with the Lord that He's asking you to do something like, John, I need you to trust me with this. This, you know, it may be control, it may be fear, maybe whatever it is. He may ask you to surrender something to Him. He may ask you to let somebody off the hook, to forgive them. He may prompt you to take some kind of redemptive or reparative action. And having named your fears and explored the things that generated them and asked the Lord to free you from them, uh, the next thing I'd advise you to do is to meditate on truth. So in struggling with, with you know, meeting my needs, meditate on the truth. God is the one who provides for all that I need. Maybe you go to passages like Matthew chapter 6, consider the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin, and yet not even Solomon in his splendor was dressed as these. You need to remind yourself and meditate on the truth. It's God who meets all of my needs. And some of you who may be reluctant to admit that are like, well, no, I'm the one working really hard to go to the Old Testament. It's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Lord, you are the one who's given me these skills and these resources. You're the one I still have to thank. You are the one who meets my needs. Or maybe in thinking of relating to someone with whom you have a strained relationship, you need to meditate on who you are in Christ Maybe you'd meditate on God as the one who will defend my identity. I don't have to earn an identity. Maybe you'd remind yourself what's true of you in your baptism. I'm his son. I'm his daughter that he loves. With me, he is well pleased. Meditate on the bigger truth to speak to your fear. And then the fifth thing I would advise and encourage you to do is to take the next step toward obedience. And remember, we do not speak great things. We live them. And the gospel is always inviting us into greater freedom by by taking steps of obedience to the Lord Jesus. Now, Protestants are freaked out about anything that sounds like trying, and we use use the idea of works righteousness as a cop-out for doing anything. But I like how Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. So as we begin to have our minds renewed to live in the truth, we need to take steps 
of obedience to do what our Savior has taught us. And so for some of us, it might mean moving away from stinginess and toward generosity. Some of you, you know, I don't know what the best thing in the world is. You know, when you see a person on the street corner, there are people who advise you to say, don't give them cash. You know, uh, uh, people at John 3.16 say, don't give them cash. But some of us may need to hand out a bunch of cash just to be generous, just to kill that idol of control and stinginess in our hearts. We just need to do it anyway. We need to move toward generosity and away from stinginess. Now, some of us may need to move away from cursing other people and toward blessing them. And you may say, I hate that person's guts. How could I possibly bless them? Well, maybe you just pray that you'd like want to bless them. Or maybe like pray like, I do want to curse them, but maybe would you help me at least not hate them? Help me at least not want to actively curse them on the road toward blessing them. Now, I like one definition of to love is to will the good of another. Maybe you would move toward willing the good of another by just praying for them. Lord, I don't like that person. I don't want to be around that person. But I pray that you'll do good things in their life. It's willing the good of another. As God prompts your heart, as you invite the Lord Jesus to move you into greater freedom, as the gospel teaches us, we must also move toward obedience. As much as it annoys me and as much as I wish it weren't so, I think some of our greatest opportunities to be a true witness of of the, the power of the gospel, our opportunities to be a true witness are at these moments of vulnerability and weakness and frustration where we can't rely on ourselves because we can't do it. We lack the strength we need to be transformed or we're relying on the Lord to pull through for us. And in doing this and allowing ourselves to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll show off to the world our family resemblance. Then in doing this, you'll be called children of your Father in heaven. As we do all of this, we're we're making it a unified movement toward the Lord Jesus. And as we come to the table, we remember how Jesus didn't hold anything back. But he offered even his very life, not only for his friends, but for his enemies. Greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. And yet Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. And even now, while the world lives in ignorance of God and in defiance and rebellion against God, Jesus is pulling for us at the right hand of the Father, teaching us the very meaning of patience and modeling for us a life that is truly and completely without fear. What are you afraid of? And how might the Lord be inviting you today into greater freedom? Let's pray. Lord, I'm afraid of all kinds of things. All of us are. To explain them to someone else feels, you know, irrational or stupid, illogical, and yet these fears to us are so real. Like we feel them in our physical bodies. We can't sleep at night at times because of the things that we're afraid of. And, and the, feels are, the feelings are so real that we've not even trusted them to you because we don't want you to, to come into that part of our hearts and, and draw greater attention to this way in which we're not well. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you give us the grace and the humility and the patience to allow you to teach us to be well. I pray for those who are listening, those who, who's, who know their own fears and hurts 
all too well that you give them the grace to name it to you and invite you in. Would you be present as they're searching back on their own story and family history and choices and the consequences of those choices and, and, and appropriately and helpfully, like a surgeon, name the sickness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, remove it. Lord Jesus, we know that sometimes you heal completely and, and oftentimes, like Paul, we have this thorn in the flesh that we will deal with for a long time, but we pray that, as Paul said, your grace would prove sufficient. That in bearing with these vulnerabilities, we would, we would readily acknowledge our insufficiency to meet the demands of, of Christ, to obey, but we'd find that you are more than enough for us. Forgive us for over-reliance on ourselves. Forgive us for our pride that keeps us from letting you heal us. And I pray that you would transform and renew our minds according to the truth. Lord, I know that there are people in the room today who, when it comes to a certain topic of fear, are just like little boys and little girls. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that they could imagine you going to that moment where that fear was generated. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you give them the grace to see you with your arm around them, telling them it's going to be okay. Lord Jesus, increase our confidence in you and our trust in you. And I pray that our witness to the world would be just a story of the great things that you've done in our life as we leaned into the discomfort and let you teach us the way of peace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us, that you're working for our good, that you offer us salvation. We pray that you'd give us the grace today to say yes and not to say no if we hear your voice. Lord, as we receive communion, pour out your spirit on this. Make it be so much more than just bread and wine, but a means by which, through the Holy Spirit, we experience the power and the presence of Jesus Christ who's making all things new. I pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.